This week I'd like to tell you a personal story. It began on one of those cold patches of weather we get in Seattle every three or four years, where it snowed several inches and the snow ended up lasting about a week. On that cold January night, I met a retired army ranger on the street and we struck up a short conversation. The short conversation turned into a long conversation, and he invited me into his home. I had the time and spent the evening listening to his story on that snowy winter's night in his home, a tent in Seattle's Beacon Hill neighborhood. My new friend had been in the Special Forces. He was well-trained and very good at what he did. As a result, our country didn't send him to a platoon and ask him to serve on the front lines in some conflict somewhere. Rather, as a leader of his squad, he was sent on tactical missions, always in harm's way and always courting danger. He had grown up wanting to join the army, and when he was old enough, he joined, serving our country as a soldier at the highest level. I've always known the power of story. We all have stories. We come home nightly and tell our loved ones the story of our day, or tell our friends the important things going on in our lives, or perhaps call our parents or brother or sister to catch up on a weekend. And so we have someone to share our joys and to care about the problems and pain in our life. But what about the misfit that eats alone at work? the fringe person that hangs out on the edges of the church group, the lonely woman at the managed care home whose family has passed and doesn't have any children to see her. If you take time and listen to the story of someone who has no one to share their joys or challenges with, you can rock their world. Anyway, that snowy evening, I found my new friend had quite a story to tell. He was a soldier, and as a ranger, He was operating in some of the most dangerous engagements our government asked of its soldiers. I'm a lawyer, and I've heard a lot of tough stories in my life. I won't go into his experiences in combat, but his were some of the more intense and tragic stories I've heard. At any rate, my new friend and I talked well into the night. I was honored that an American hero would share his story with me and I think it was clear that this soldier was glad to have someone to share his American journey with. At the time, I regularly walked for exercise, and my friend's tent was along my route. I'd stop and we'd talk. On occasion, we'd go out for lunch or dinner. He was a good man who had grown up in a small southern town with traditional values. He had gladly volunteered to serve his country when he was of age. When called to engagements that would make most of us shudder, he never hesitated, but did his duty as his country called. He was injured and was discharged from the army with a partial disability and a small monthly check for his service, not enough to pay for housing. I got to know my friend well and had no doubt that he was unable to hold down a full-time job, yet it was up to him to prove his disability, not the Veterans Administration's job to reach out and fully evaluate him. So instead of getting full disability, my friend slept in a tent and made do with the partial disability check he received for the sacrifices he made for our country. I moved away and we kept in touch by phone. Eventually, his phone was disconnected. 
and went back to the area he used to live, but he was no longer there. I'm sure I'll never see my friend again or learn of his fate. I'm deeply saddened by this and pray for him regularly. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 38, The Lost Causes Malfunction. Every day, 55 people, on average, become homeless in the United States. While the homeless rate did begin to decline briefly, it's now rising again. In some states, it's exploding. In Colorado, it's estimated that on any given night, there are about 10,000 people without homes. In Las Vegas, Many people living in the sewers never get counted in the homeless statistics. Warm weather is one draw for the homeless. Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico all have large homeless populations relative to their populations. Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana have the fewest numbers of homeless. These are some of the poorest states. Wouldn't that lead to more homelessness? Perhaps. But the cost of housing is lower there as well. The cost of living there is only 40% of what it is in California, for example. Another reason may possibly be the services offered to the homeless. I don't know what services these states provide. But if there are no services provided to the homeless, those who are homeless are likely to migrate to somewhere where they can at least receive meals and basic services. Which states have the largest homeless populations per capita? Washington comes in number five. Seattle, famously, has become a final destination for a large number of homeless. In the most recent point-in-time survey, measuring homelessness in King County, Seattle's county, they counted a little shy of 12,000 homeless. Oregon came in fourth. California came in third. California has had a 16% increase in homelessness over the last decade. It's estimated that 150,000 people are homeless in California, but it's thought to be much more than that. L.A., also famously, has a huge homeless population living on its streets. Hawaii is the most expensive state to live in and used to have the most homeless per capita. Homeless people in Hawaii can obviously not easily move to another state, although improved homeless programs has helped Hawaii fall to number two now. New York has the highest rate of homelessness per capita of any state in the U.S. Reportedly, New York's solution to the homeless crisis includes paying for shelter in neighboring New Jersey and buying one-way bus tickets to other states. I don't know if that's true, but it's a sad commentary on the policymakers in New York, if so. There are an estimated 100,000 homeless in the state of New York, 80,000 of whom live in New York City. Reportedly, one in five homeless people in the U.S. live in our largest cities of New York and L.A. That's it for U.S. states. But if we were to include districts and territories, Washington, D.C. would rank number one. It has even more homeless per capita than New York. In the U.S. as a whole, 
it's estimated that there are over 550,000 homeless. That's essentially the entire population of Wyoming. Homelessness certainly cuts across all races and genders, but it's much more prevalent among certain groups. Notably, African Americans make up 13% of the U.S. population, but account for 40% of the homeless population in America. As a nation, we spend about $3 billion per year on the homeless problem. By comparison, we spend well over $11 billion helping to support the nations of Afghanistan, Israel, Jordan, and Egypt. Here's my take on it. The money we spend to combat the homeless problem is largely done on the local level, while foreign aid is part of our federal budget. Seattle's budget for the homeless in 2020 was $95 million. In King County, where Seattle is located, the 2021 budget for homelessness is $165 million, and this spending raises taxes and takes away from parks and other spending, etc., to combat this terrible crisis. The result? Increasing homelessness. Why is that? To answer this question, we'll have to look at the inner workings of homelessness a bit. When you ask people, why do you think people become homeless? They almost universally give the same three answers. Mental illness, drugs, and economic causes. Let's take these in order. Number one, mental illness. Correct. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, at least 25% of homeless are mentally ill. But let's look a little deeper into this issue. First, there are no studies I'm aware of that look into how many of these 25% would be able to live with well-controlled mental illness if they were not homeless. The relationship between stress and mental disorders is well known. The interrelationship between mental disorders and the ability to keep a job and manage one's life is complicated, leading many into chronic unemployment and, ultimately, to homelessness. But let's look further. I grew up in a country largely without mentally ill homeless on the streets. Where were they? Well, back then, in the day, they were institutionalized. My mother was a nurse. As part of her nurse's training back in the 1940s, she had to do a rotation in the state mental hospital. I remember her telling me two things about this experience. First, how this was just at the time they were making the transition between orderlies, that is, minimally trained overseers in the mental institutions, to train nurses. And two, how horrible it was and how she hated her time there. She was right. Conditions were horrible in state psychiatric institutions in the 1940s and 50s. Don't believe me? Watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay, it may be a little bit overdone for the Hollywood effect, but basically, it's not all that far off. Things were really bad in state institutions back then. These abysmal conditions inevitably led to lawsuits, and in a series of Supreme Court cases in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the mentally ill were provided with more and more rights, including, most famously, that no one can be institutionalized against their will unless they're a danger to themselves or others. This means that if someone doesn't want to be institutionalized, and they're not dangerous, 
They don't have to stay in a mental institution. And who would want to? So they're released to live on their own. Our mental health system provides the medications that people need to help them live a normal life. The problem is, there's a condition called anosognosia that goes along with mental illnesses like schizophrenia. This condition prevents people with mental illness from understanding that they have mental illness, and since they don't perceive themselves as being mentally ill, they stop taking their medications. Why take meds, often with very negative side effects, if you don't need them? This has led to a massive population with untreated mental illness. The consequent downward spiral is foreseeable. The mentally ill don't see that they need their medication, so the schizophrenic begins to hear voices, or the person with bipolar disorder enters a severe depression. They both find it difficult to work and ultimately lose their jobs. They even find it difficult to navigate the bureaucratic maze to receive support that may be available to them and end up on the street. Number two, substance abuse. It's hard to find accurate numbers to put on these things, but clearly a significant percentage of homeless are either drug or alcohol dependent. Still, this doesn't answer the question. Did the substance abuse cause the homelessness, or did the stress and hopelessness of being homeless cause the substance abuse? Although I'm certainly not the authority on the subject, my work in my previous life brought me to some degree into contact with drug abusers. Here's what I learned. They're manipulative. Pretty much anyone who's worked with them will tell you that. It's how they get by. The systems in the brain that kick in once one becomes addicted to a drug are overwhelming, and the user's entire existence can become focused on getting the next fix. It's common to learn to manipulate people in order to get the drugs that will keep you from going into withdrawal. This may include urgent calls to family and friends, with some excuse, such as they need a couple of hundred dollars in order to make rent or the landlord will throw them out on the street. Family and friends will only fall for this so many times before they realize that they're being played. Eventually, bridges are burned, often permanently. What can one do when one's obsession with drugs has led them to destroy all their connections with those who have cared about them and left them incapable of holding down a job. The street is, of course, their last resort. This makes me wonder about the opioid epidemic. There's so much written and reported now about how the producers of opioid painkillers advertised that they were not addictive and encouraged the overprescription of these medications in order to make higher profits. In 2019 alone, 50,000 people in the U.S. died from opioid-involved causes. I wonder how many people ended up in the cycle of manipulation and alienation of those who cared about them, and ultimately a life on the streets, due to this desire of these companies to make ever greater profits. So substance abuse has certainly led many to end up homeless. But how many have ended up substance abusers because of the difficulty of life on the street? And number three, loss of income. I had a client during the latter part of the Great Recession. She'd always worked, but lost her low-skilled job and income 
early in the recession. She wasn't particularly smart, good-looking, or skilled. She didn't have amazing people skills and was in her later 50s, but she was a good worker and desperately wanted to work. The problem was that it had been a few years that she'd been out of work, and she knew that her unemployment was finally about to run out, but employers weren't hiring the long-term unemployed, especially not people of her age. She had no savings left, and there was no family who could help. Once you see the terror of somebody who knows they'll be homeless in a few months, and there's nothing that can be done about it, you'll never forget it. Multiply my client by how many tens of thousands? I don't know. But with 55,000 homeless on our streets and in temporary shelters, it's undoubtedly many thousands. I've heard so many people blame the homeless for being lazy and choosing their lifestyle. According to this theory, for the homeless, life is one big party. You can just panhandle long enough to buy your fifth and then party all night long. Such beliefs can only be held when the homeless are the outgroup. Here's my take. I recently saw the movie In the Heights. One thing I loved about it, in addition to the amazing music and dancing, was that it was about life in a barrio an area of town that someone passing through might hold his or her wallet or purse just a little tighter and just see it as a poor section of town. But in the movie, you saw a vibrant community, a thriving system of interconnected families and friends. In my early 20s, I married into a Mexican family in San Diego, though my in-laws lived in an upscale area. My wife's abuelos lived in a small barrio in North San Diego County. I came to know this little barrio, where people all knew and cared for each other. It was a much more communal, caring place than most neighborhoods I've lived in. I'm not sure how much this holds true in homeless encampments, though I do know of cases where there are social networks in such places. However, whatever connections they may or may not have with each other, there's a wall that exists between the homeless and mainstream society. We see them in our everyday lives. For some of us who work downtown, they may be a regular part of our day. As we pass them on the street, on the way to our office or lunch, they've become a fixture of life in so many U.S. cities. But we allow them to fade into the background of our world. Perhaps we think as we pass by, poor guy, must be a tough life, or wonder what brought her down so far, or perhaps why don't they get jobs? Seldom does it go beyond this. We don't dwell on such thoughts and get on to more important matters in our lives. For years, I worked in the downtown areas of both Portland, Oregon, and Seattle. I got tired of just walking past the homeless. I finally decided that if I needed to eat lunch downtown anyway, I might as well get some food and enjoy the company. I started inviting local homeless to eat lunch or dinner with me. Sometimes we'd get food at a local food truck, or sometimes we'd find a place to get a bite, and I'd sit and listen to their stories. I've talked about the power of story before. It was these meals that showed me how powerful sharing their stories were for the homeless. I've also discussed Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
anyone who's homeless, has already lost or suffered very significant impairment of Maslow's first two tiers. His third tier deals with, among other things, a sense of belonging. Perhaps a homeless community may or may not be able to fill this need in part. Maslow's fourth tier concerns esteem, having some kind of prestige in the eyes of others. These are people who haven't always lived on the street or been homeless. They once were able to achieve certain levels of success that others had recognized. Now they had none. Yet every day, they are side by side with those who aren't homeless and who are enjoying the amenities of 20th century American society. In large part, these are people who don't spend a lot of time caring personally, that is one-on-one, for the homeless they see on the street. They might volunteer on occasion to help serve dinner in a homeless shelter, but sit down and share a meal with them, listen to their story, and empathize with them? Unfortunately, it doesn't happen enough. Sadly, there's the homeless wall that exists between the homeless and non-homeless communities. The homeless have lost not only a roof over their head and their security, but also any prestige and connection that existed when someone they respected respected them in return. But what's it like to be homeless? From what I can gather talking to the homeless, the first emotion one feels is fear. The streets are not a safe or a friendly place. There are people there who will most definitely take advantage of you if they can. If you're new to the streets of a city, you want to stay far away from them. I met a young man once who was new to the streets of Seattle. He was definitely in the fear stage. He stayed far away from the hardcore downtown section. Nights were the worst. That's when you're most likely to be rolled. He had met a sympathetic cop who saw a scared, naive kid new to the streets and suggested the safest, most out-of-the-way place he could find for the young man to sleep. If you're a woman, the fear is compounded significantly. Find your way to a homeless shelter immediately. And what about dignity? I think for a lot of us, our dignity is something we take for granted. We're respected by our friends, co-workers, and family. It's a little like the air we breathe. It's just there, a part of our everyday life. But lose everything you have and move onto the street, and now you've lost all your dignity. You've lost your self-worth. You're a different person. When you first became homeless, you had hope. This hope was what kept you going the belief that you would one day make it off the street and back into your regular life. But after you've been on the street for a while, you realized that the forces that conspired to put you onto the street will keep you there. By then you've made a connection with a group of homeless, and you've found your niche within their matrix. Very slowly, you lose hope of making it out, of ever making it back to your old life. As you lose hope, you cease to care to care about yourself, your health, your dignity, your happiness, pretty much everything, except perhaps the little enjoyment you might get that evening. So, you might panhandle to get enough to buy a bottle of wine, or maybe a little whiskey, that'll make life on the streets just a little bit more endurable, if just for that evening. Perhaps harder drugs are your escape of choice. What else can you do? You've lost your safety and security, your esteem, your dignity, and now all hope. 
remember our friend, Don Fray Bartolome de las Casas? He had it made. In the 16th century, he had put together enough to get from Spain to the New World and establish a large encomienda with many slaves, enough to produce sufficient food to make him wealthy and live the life of a wealthy Spanish landowner. Then, his compassion switch malfunctioned. It got stuck in the on position. He, for some reason, began to see how miserable life was for his slaves. Even more unusual for people of his position and time, he began to empathize with them. He couldn't continue to be a slave master, profiting off the misery and death of his slaves. Even more, he dedicated himself to advocating for slaves in the New World. This is episode 38. We've got 14 more to go. We're not there yet, but I'm arguing that we're at a turning point in history. As with all turning points, we may turn in a good direction or a self-destructive direction. What's clear at this point is that we've chosen a path in which it's acceptable to allow as many people to become homeless in our country as there are men, women, and children in the entire state of Wyoming. What's just as clear is that we're not going to make the choices necessary to get our country and the world in general moving in the right direction so long as we're chill with having half a million homeless living on our streets. So why are there so many homeless in America now when I grew up having virtually never seen a homeless person? On one hand, it's very complicated. This is what everyone will tell you, how complicated the roots of homelessness are. And that's very true if you look at it from each of the stories of the myriad homeless that are on our streets and in our shelters. But that's the reductionist approach, reducing every question to a smaller and smaller sub-question. That's not what we're doing in this podcast. From the expansive view, the big picture, the answer is very simple. Look at it like this. There are always those that dwell at the bottom of the social order. Take, for example, my client, who didn't have a lot of skills, a lot of brains, wasn't particularly attractive, and was getting older. And the thriving economies that America had in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, we had a very strong middle class and an economy that provided jobs, certainly many many more middle-class jobs than we're able to provide today. And down at the bottom of the economy, there were enough jobs that were able to keep people like my client housed and fed, even if they didn't have enough money to bring them into the middle class. Then came the Reagan Revolution of 1980 and the mania for cutting taxes. But the 40-year American love affair with cutting taxes hasn't focused on tax cuts across the board, has been repeated tax cuts again and again for the richest Americans. What's the effect of cutting taxes on the richest in a society? The answer is obvious and always has been. First, what does a middle class person do with the tax windfall when his or her taxes are cut? They take the vacation they've always wanted to take, do the house remodel that they've been hoping to do, buy the car they've desperately needed, or spend the money many, many other ways that they've long wished they could. The point is, 
that however they spend the money, which the vast, vast majority of them do, they spend the money, which keeps the money circulating in the economy, which creates more jobs. This creates the magic of the middle-class economy that we discussed in episode 36, the kind of middle-class-based economy that powered American economic growth from the 50s to the early 70s. On the other hand, what do the rich, and especially the super-rich, do when you give them tax cuts? They save it, of course. It's very nice that rich people can have more and more money, but what's the effect of their saving ever more money? As we've noted, of course, the answer is that it takes the money out of circulation. And what's the effect of taking money out of the economy? It means that money no longer circulates to provide vacations, buy the cars, pay for the refrigerators, or the thousands of other things that create middle-class jobs that would have otherwise been maintained had the money been kept in circulation in the economy. Herein lies the irony of the Republicans' claim as they pass the last massive tax cuts for the super-rich, claiming that the money was going to, quote, job creators, and promising that if you gave enough money to the super-rich, they would create even more jobs. They knew all the time that the super-rich would save the money, take it out of circulation, and reduce the number of jobs in the U.S., But the far-right Republican-funded think tanks came up with terms and marketing strategies to sell yet another massive tax cut for the super-rich. They ran their ideas past focus groups who told them that their ideas wouldn't fly with middle-class voters. What they wanted was more jobs. So the think tanks came up with the term job creators. Focus groups liked it, because they thought job creators would create more jobs for them. So the Republicans sold our last tax cut for the super-rich as giving more money to, quote, job creators. The reality was simply another massive tax cut for the super-rich, allowing them to hoard even more wealth and taking even more money out of the economy, destroying our middle-class economy even more. This has been going on since Reagan's first tax cut in 1981. And what's been the effect on the homeless of 40 years of tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans? The homeless population in 1980, when Reagan took office, was far less than one-fifth of what it is now. Since then, the incomes of the top 1% of wage earners have grown five times faster than the middle-class income, which, during much of this time, remained stagnant or nearly stagnant. In turn, the jobs that had kept the lowest quintile of Americans with houses over their heads and food to eat have slowly ebbed away. Is this okay? Is this who we want to be? Is it okay to sacrifice those at the bottom of our income spectrum so that the super-rich can become even richer? The answer is that unless we stop seeing the homeless as an outgroup, and see them once again as fellow Americans, will never make the changes needed to address climate change. Yes, it's all one big system, and there's no simple answer to climate change. Somehow, we've lost the compassion we used to have for those at the bottom of our economic system. 
Regaining that compassion is an important first step toward understanding the complexities necessary to address climate change. So, we're 14 episodes away from our conclusion, but here's our first answer. Reform the tax code. Start allowing the super-rich to pay the portion of taxes they once paid in order to return our country to the middle-class-driven economy it was before the Reagan Revolution. Turn on your compassion switch. Allow the Las Casas malfunction to be your malfunction. Begin to return America to the land that had no major homeless crisis, no extreme wealth gap, and a thriving middle class. You have no reading this week, just an assignment. Break through the homeless wall. Take a homeless person to lunch. No, don't volunteer to stand behind a counter and serve dinner at your local shelter. Take someone to lunch, listen to them, and get to know their story. You'll both be better for it. Enjoy. See you next week.